Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who has spoken at many times and in many ways through the prophets and then most climactically in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now that as your word is now preached, your Holy Spirit would shine forth into our hearts, illuminating this word to give us understanding, to work in us faith, and to move us to respond with obedience. For this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text, continuing the book of Zechariah. We've come now to chapter 7. You'll find this in the Pew Bibles on page 795. So, Zechariah chapter 7. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharzer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention, and turned a stubborn shoulder, and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro in the pleasant land was made desolate. This passage before us this morning confronts us with a difficult question. How much of God's worship is really for God? And how much of it it is about us? How much of it is for us? Do you really come to worship to give glory to God who reigns on high? Or do you come because you like the music? And you get to see your friends and, well, they have coffee afterwards. Perhaps you're just in the habit of coming. You need to check off the box so that 
you can do whatever you please the rest of the week. Is it about God or is it about you? We also have a baptism this morning, a holy sacrament, and we will reflect on the precious meaning of it beforehand as I read the baptism statement. But are we focused on that, on how baptism honors the Lord and its deep and serious meaning? Or will we be distracted by how cute the baby's clothes are and whether or not he cries and how the family's photos turn out? Or will we be thinking about the luncheon afterwards and whether or not so-and-so brought that nice dessert that you always like to have? Is worship about you or about God and serving God and giving him the glory? There's always a great danger of turning God's worship into a series of empty rituals of false religiosity, of ignoring his word, and before you know it, you have Christianity without Christ. You have religion, but you've removed God from it. And the great danger that we see in our passage this morning is that God is greatly opposed to such empty religiosity. He hates it when his worship is conducted with hearts that are far from him when his name is used in vain, or when his word is ignored. And he brought down judgment on his own people for doing these very things. In this passage, you may be surprised to hear that Zechariah, he says, I'm not really saying anything new. He makes it quite clear, and he's simply repeating what the earlier prophets had said. Not only that, but this passage, it's very similar to the the first six books of this very same book, Zechariah's opening message, which he had preached only two years earlier. And then as we work our way through this passage, I'll also show these are the same points that are brought up again by Jesus in his day. And so these are warnings that God's people need to hear again and again. They are warnings that you need to hear as well today. So first we'll see, you need to watch out for false religiosity. Second, to practice true spirituality, true godliness. And third, watch out for unbelief. So first, this morning, watch out for false religiosity. We learn from verses 2 and 3 the context for this chapter. It's that this delegation had come from the town of Bethel. It's about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. They come down to Jerusalem. They're led by these two men. Sharzer and Regum Melech. They were sent to the priests and the prophets in the house of the Lord to entreat the favor of the Lord, and they have this question to ask. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? From Zechariah's response in verse 5, we learn that not only this individual who's asking, but in fact many of the people had been fasting, and they'd been doing so for nearly 70 years. And that brings us back to the destruction of the temple. And that had happened in this very fifth month. And so it had become a tradition to fast and mourn, to remember and lament the destruction of the city and especially Solomon's temple. We learn from verse 1 that this is now the fourth year of King Darius. It's two years after the previous revelation, Zechariah's night visions. And the completion of the temple is now only two years away. So the people have the sense the rebuilt temple is nearing its completion. And this must have prompted the question, 
Should the people continue to fast and mourn over the destruction of the original temple when, by God's grace, the rebuilt temple, it's nearing its completion? Let me make a comparison. Personally, I'm not a big fan of overly gloomy Good Friday services. We can and we should be convicted by the cross and the death of Jesus Christ because he suffered and died for our sins. But we don't grieve and mourn as if he's still in the grave because we know the end of the story. We know he is risen. So we can never put ourselves back into the same state of mind as those first disciples who didn't really believe what he had told them and what they should have known, that he would rise again. And so the Jewish believers, in a similar way, they're starting to feel conflicted. They were still mourning and grieving for the destroyed temple, even as the new temple is rising again from the ashes before their eyes. So they ask, should we still be mourning, lamenting, fasting, as if the temple is not being rebuilt before our eyes? But as we look at the Lord's response to their question, through the prophet Zechariah, we'll notice they do not actually receive a direct answer till the very end of chapter 8. We'll look at chapter 8 next time. Now, instead of directly answering, the Lord has many other things to say to them before giving them a straight answer. First, the Lord answers their question with more questions, three questions to be exact, and he challenges their motives. Why are you really fasting? Verse 4, And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? This rhetorical question is basically accusing the people of fasting, not for the Lord, but for themselves. How could such a thing be? Doesn't fasting naturally humble a person before the Lord? I'll leave it up to the inventiveness of the sinful heart of man, and we can turn anything, even fasting, into sin. This is how they did it in Isaiah's day, and perhaps it was the same in Zechariah's. As we read earlier from Isaiah, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a man to humble himself? Is it to bow your head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Perhaps you recall how they turned fasting into a source of pride, to showing off in Jesus' day. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Matthew 6.16 One of the points of fasting and mourning is to humble yourself and to actually repent of sin. Not to show off, not to parade your fasting before others. The fact that they were fasting and mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, it likely indicates they were not focused on their own repentance. They were mourning over the consequence of other people's sins. Really, they were upset because it had hurt 
them. They had lost the beautiful city of Jerusalem, their glorious temple. And now they had to live in ruins. And fasting, it was a way to express this sorrow. But it was a worldly sorrow. A sign of false repentance. That's when you're not sorrowful over sin itself because your sin grieves the Lord. But you're just upset because the consequences of sin are hurting you. False repentance. Worldly sorrow. And you know how sometimes when you're sad, you listen to a sad song and that makes you feel a little bit better. You get your emotions out. I think fasting was like that for the people. They were doing it for themselves, to make themselves feel better, not for the Lord. And so the Lord calls out their empty fasting. Then from the fasting, the Lord targets their selfish feasting. In his second question, verse 6, And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Here the Lord has in mind not just everyday meals, but especially the Lord's feasts. The festival of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. These were religious feasts that were to be celebrated for the Lord's sake in remembrance of the Lord's saving work. And they did include joyous meals, but there were also times of teaching, times of reflection, of repentance again. But the people had forgotten the Lord in their feasting. They were again only focused on their own pleasure. He had previously put it this way through the prophet Amos. Amos 5, 21 through 24, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos proclaimed this at a time when the people, they kept the religious festivals, but they had totally forgotten the character of the God that these festivals were meant to worship. And the Lord is saying, whether it is a fast or a feast, it is meaningless if you do not know me, if you do not value what I value, if you don't care anything for holiness and righteousness and love and justice and mercy. This is what I'm all about. And we're going to see all these things come up in the very next section in Zechariah 7. The point is that these religious rituals, whether that's formal worship or feasting or fasting, these things are meaningless if you don't know the Lord, if you don't have a right relationship with Him. And to relate to God, you need to listen to his voice. And that's exactly where the Lord goes in his third question, verse 7. Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? This reference to the former prophets, it points back to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel especially but also includes all the other prophets that had spoken before, perhaps Amos, like I just quoted. He likely has in mind this passage from Isaiah 58, but we find strong similarities between our passage and Jeremiah, and there are many others. 
The way this question is phrased, it's not clear if he's pointing backwards to the last two verses or forwards to what he will say. I think really it applies both ways. For everything that the Lord says through Zechariah in this whole chapter, nothing here is really new. In many ways, it's like a sermon. Zechariah is taking the words of the former prophets and applying them to this new generation. And so Zechariah here, he also, he recalls that these former prophets, they prophesied during a more prosperous time. When not only Jerusalem had more people and prosperity, but there were people filling the cities all around her to the south and in the foothills to the west. But the people, they know they live in a time when all this has been lost because their forefathers disobeyed those former prophets. The challenge to them now is, will they learn from this lesson? Will they listen and obey where their forefathers did not? In order to do so, they need to give up this empty religiosity. Instead, they need to practice true spirituality, true godliness. That's what we'll see here in verses 8 through 10. So we read, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Here we see what the Lord values far more highly than showing off with a fast that is man-made, something the Lord didn't even command. Here we see four commands. The first two are positive. The second two are negative, but they all go together. First, to render true judgments refers to fairness in all things. It's certainly fairness in the courtroom, but it's also doing what's right in the marketplace and really in all of life. Doing what's right so that things never even get to the courtroom. In all this, it's to imitate the Lord who is the perfectly just judge. Second, the Lord causes people to show kindness and mercy to one another. And really, this is saying, love one another as God loves. Because here it's drawing on two of the essential characters of the characteristics of the very nature of God Himself. These two terms are found together throughout the scripture to describe the Lord. And perhaps most famously in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love or the loving kindness of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Just as the Lord here calls us to imitate his kindness and mercy in general, he then specifically calls his people to, take, to not take advantage of the most vulnerable in society, those for whom the Lord himself takes special care Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And then he says, let none of you devise evil against another in his heart. This last phrase, it's taking things one step further. He's saying, it's not just enough to not take concrete actions against another person, but watch even your mind and your heart. Do not even think about doing evil to another person. The Lord has said all these things before in the earlier prophets. Now he's repeating them through the prophet Zechariah. For example, you have the well-known words of Micah 6.8. 
He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There are also some nearly identical verses in Jeremiah 7. I won't even repeat them because they're very similar to the verses here. Our Lord Jesus Christ then picks up on this theme in his critique of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders in his day. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, Matthew 23. You may recall that the Pharisees, they were famous for their strictness in keeping the very smallest details of the law. But in doing this, they had missed the big picture. They had forgotten that they needed to actually conform themselves to the character of God himself, his justice and mercy and faithfulness. Not to mention the fact that when their long-awaited Messiah came to finally deliver them, they completely missed him. In many ways, these verses are similar to the message that pervades John's first letter. That the two great commandments, love for God and love for neighbor, must always go together. These two go hand in hand. As John writes, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In other words, applying it to what we've seen here in Zechariah 7, if you are so focused on your devotion to God through various religious rituals, that meanwhile you have no love for the others around you. In fact, you are actually sinning against them. And God says, your religion, your worship, your rituals, they are empty I care nothing for them. It's not that God doesn't want you to worship him and to pray to him and read the scriptures. He does command all those things. But as Jesus says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You must love God and love others. These two things go hand in hand. This is what it means to practice true spirituality. And the third and final section of our passage is a warning to watch out for unbelief. Here the Lord begins to speak of how the previous generations failed to listen to his word. And how the Lord poured out his judgment on them for this. It's a grave lesson, a grave warning for God's people in Zechariah's day and for us as well. In verses 11 and 12, their rejection of God's word is described in four distinct ways. First, they refuse to pay attention. This is the most general description. But then this is fleshed out with three uh, references to three body parts. The second, they turned a stubborn shoulder. It's the language of an animal who refuses the yoke. Third, they stopped their ears that they might not even hear. It's like them plugging their ears, la, la, la. And fourth, they made their hearts diamond hard. 
set against hearing the law and the word of the Lord. So hard that nothing could penetrate their heart. The overall picture is setting the entire body and the ear to the shoulder to the heart against hearing or obeying the word of the Lord. And the result of this all is catastrophic. As described in verses 13 and 14. First, the Lord closes his ear to their prayers. And the punishment here fits the crime. If they do not listen to the Lord, he no longer listens to them. He no longer answers their prayers. We should pause here for a moment and recognize this is not the Lord's ordinary response to the sin of his people. When you sin, even if you sin grievously against the Lord, He will continue to hear your prayers. You can go to him. Go to him and repent of your sin and he will hear you and forgive you by his grace in Jesus Christ. Often we don't even know that we've sinned against him. And yet the Lord continues to be gracious to us and to hear us. We should note here just how grievous and complete Israel's rejection of God's word was for him to come to this point of shutting his ears To them. Now that's one side of it. At the same time, recognize this is a warning and a true warning. This isn't the Lord's ordinary, everyday response to the ordinary, everyday sins of his people. But it is his response when his people stubbornly and consistently turn away from him. And there is a point when you cross that line. And so second, so first he no longer hears their prayer. Second, the Lord scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations. Now this was one of the covenant curses. It refers not only to the exile of the southern kingdom, which Zechariah has been prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah, sent into exile into Babylon, but also the exile of the northern kingdom into Assyria and lands beyond. It's a reversal of the picture of the well-inhabited Jerusalem and surrounding lands that we saw in verse 7. Now the land is left utterly desolate. It's the landscape the people are living in in Zechariah's day. It's a warning that they can't help but see around them of what happened to their forefathers for rejecting and ignoring the word of God. And now the Lord is saying to them, I know you fast and mourn over the destruction of the temple. But I see right through you. This is but an empty ritual. You're grieving over your loss. But are you grieving over your sin? Are you ready to turn from your sin? Are you ready to trust and follow me? Are you ready to give your heart to me? And this is something we see far too often in the scriptures, far too often in real life. Ignoring what the Lord requires, ignoring what the Lord asks of us, and then trying to make up for it with man-made rituals and traditions. One example of this is the story of King Saul. The Lord had commanded him to devote the Amalekites and all that they possessed to destruction, to utterly wipe them out. He instead decides to let the people take the best of their sheep and oxen and other spoil and bring it and sacrifice it to the Lord. Wouldn't the Lord love that? The Lord says through Samuel, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. First Samuel fifteen twenty two, and this is what the Lord says over and over again in His Word. Simply, listen to me, hear my word, believe it, and obey me. That's all I ask of you. I don't need your man-made rituals, your fasts, and your sacrifices, especially when you're just doing these things to try to make up for the fact that you've not listened and you've disobeyed me in the first place. This is what David recognized in Psalm 51 as he was repenting of his grievous sin. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The truth is, we can never balance the scales on our own. You can never make up for your sins by doing enough good deeds in God's sight. Even your best deeds are as filthy rags. And so as David recognized, the Lord seeks a broken and contrite heart. He seeks repentance and faith. And he calls you to turn from your sins, to put your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. To look to him in his perfect righteousness and his finished work on the cross. It isn't this wonderful good news. That you can put away the empty rituals and simply cast yourself on the mercy of God found in his son. But then he does call you in gratitude for this mercy to practice true spirituality, to become like him, to show loving kindness and mercy to others, just like the love and mercy that you have received from Christ. We love because he first loved us. And such a loving and merciful God, he deserves our worship. And we must worship him as he has commanded us, not according to the traditions or imaginations of men. It's when you come to worship, come for the Lord's sake, because he is, worse, he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And as you worship him rightly, it's true. You will be encouraged because obeying the Lord is good for you. And he also knows you. He knows the motives of your heart. He knows why you come. So come for his sake, for his glory. And as you examine your heart, asking yourself, why do I come to worship? If you know your motives aren't right, now is the time to pray. Pray and ask the Lord, purify my heart. Cleanse me from within. And when you pray, and say you're praying, asking for something, he knows why you ask the things you ask for, whether you are seeking him for his glory or simply asking for your own fleeting pleasure, he will answer for your own lasting good, for your own maturity and growth. And once again, as you seek him, you can ask that he would be working to purify your desires, to help you to set your heart on him and his kingdom. Pray, Lord, help me to put to death my sinful, worldly desires. Put to death my love for self that I might seek you first 
Seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that I might seek to glorify you above all things. And perhaps you know that there are certain idols that have been creeping up, competing in your heart for the Lord's place. These things too you need to bring to the Lord. Repenting, yes, but go to the Lord. Ask him for help. You cannot do this on your own. The Lord calls you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But he is the only one who can help you and give you the strength to do this. And when you fail, certainly you will fail. We all will fail. You can't make up for it by religious rituals, by duties, by penance. But you can turn back to the Lord. You can seek Him, going to Him through His Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And He is kind, He is faithful, and He is merciful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that our sinful tendency is towards empty religiosity. The gospel of free and unmerited grace is so counterintuitive to our natural works-based mindset. But we thank you that it is through the free grace received through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. And so we've put our faith in Christ, and we are grateful for your mercy. Lord, help us out of gratitude to desire to worship you and you alone and out of gratitude to want to serve you with all that is in us, with every breath, with every ounce of strength that we have to live our lives for you. Help us, Lord, purify our desires, purify our motives so that we might live our lives for you, dying to ourselves and serving you for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.